Hello everyone, welcome back to the Eat, Burn, Sleep podcast. Today we're going to be talking about performance and coaching. My guest is Miles Downey. He's the father of modern coaching. He's a recognized authority on performance coaching and leadership and the author of three classics in that field. Effective Coaching, which has sold over 350,000 books, and Enabling Genius, that helps with a mindset for success in the 21st century. The Enabling Manager has come out last summer and it helps you to get the best out of your team. Miles is one of the leading executive performance coaches in Europe with global experience in Europe, North and South America, Asia Pacific, the UAE. He's worked across so many prestigious organizations over the last 30 years in a wide variety of industries, um, in banking and financial services, in manufacturing, in oil and gas, in tech, in the public sector and in sports. Miles has also worked with senior coaches of the England rugby team and the New Zealand elite rugby coaches. Miles, <laughs> I could go on and on and on about your uh, achievements. Thanks so much for being here with us today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for asking me. To give people a little bit of background, yeah. we met at a dinner not long ago. True. I yes. was lucky enough to be sat next uh, to you. I haven't told you my first impression of you, so I'm going to do it now. <laughs> okay. So I'm sitting um, at a dinner and Miles is on my right. As you do at a dinner party, you speak to people around you on your left, on your right. There were people across me. At some point, I start talking to Miles. And Miles has the kind of eyes and intelligence that lights up. The moment you started talking to me about your work and what you had done for McKinsey and their application, I could see fire in your eyes. It was quite an incredible moment. I had no idea of your achievements, of who you were. I hadn't read your books, but I immediately saw what you obviously gave to all your clients and to all the people you have helped over the years. Where did this fire come from? Oh, my. <laughs> I wish I knew. So I'm Irish. I was born into a holy Catholic Ireland, which has good sides to it and bad sides to it. It's a, a conservative country that demands, at least it did when I was growing up, it demands compliance from its people, either through the state or the church. Um, and... Uh, and somewhere in there that didn't quite fit, that, um, you know, I was a good boy growing up and I kind of just about passed the exams I was supposed to pass, but it just didn't fit. I'm, I'm not a natural rebel, so I was a quiet rebel. But what became important, and I didn't realize it at the time, was to find a way of expressing myself in the world. And that is... That's, that's fundamentally it. That's what I'm about. I'm about, and so not, not just about me <laughs> expressing myself in the world, but it's about helping other people express themselves in the world. Because in my view, that's where joy comes from. That's where achievement comes from. That's where excitement comes from. That's where connection comes from. Um, and so for me, everything starts there. I, I think that's what, when people bump into me, and if I do manage to find the switch, I think that's what they pick up on. I certainly saw it. In the first minute of us talking, what brought you onto coaching people with performance, with work? As I said, I was, uh, you know, I was a good enough boy and I, you know, relatively wealthy family and studied architecture because that's what I was, was expected of me. But I was also a fairly good tennis player. You know, we, we, we had no coaching in Ireland, the, you know, and um, not much... Uh, structure around it. But I was capable of hitting balls in practice with people in the top 100 in the world. Not capable of competing, but, you know, being a sparring partner. And I read a book just as I'd taken a job in an architect's office in Dublin, uh, which was called The Inner Game of Tennis. And it was a complete revelation because it spoke absolutely to what was important to me at a time when I didn't know that it was important to me. And within, within six months of reading the book, I'd found some people in London. The author of that book was a guy called Tim Galway, The Inner Game of Tennis. And he, Tim had trained these guys, so I went and I trained with them. And it was fascinating because it, the, the essence of 
there were, there are a number of things that are important to the game, but one of them that was particularly important was finding out that learning was independent of teaching. People have an innate capacity to learn. It's how you know people people when they learn to walk, you know, the parent does not stand behind them with their hands firmly on the shoulders, issuing instructions, condemnations, and judgments, and further instructions. That's not how it happens. And yet, somewhere along the way, we start teaching people, and that's when we completely mess them up. Not completely, because obviously teaching has a place. But we forget that there is this innate capacity to learn. And, and when you start investing in that in yourself and in other people, what happens is they start taking responsibility for their own learning, learning becomes fun, and it translates into performance much, 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 much more quickly. That was the, the opening moment reading that book, The Inner Game of Tennis. And subsequently, I've kind of made that material my own. Learning is, what did you say? Learning is independent from... Is independent from teaching. They're separate. That's, that, this is a concept I never thought about before, but it's so true. Yeah, well, where I grew up, if you didn't learn something, the teacher merely increased the volume because that was the assumption was that you hadn't heard. Not that they weren't a great teacher or anything. But if you attend to people, listen to people, help them explore, help, help them experiment, they learn. And also, when you're being taught... It doesn't empower you, yes, because it is not yours. Yes, you've by saying this, you have resolved a mystery for me. I'm somebody who's good at learning. Yeah, no doubt. At being taught, I've, I, I performed well at exams. You know, I have two postgraduate degrees, two masters in finance. Yeah, I know how to do the present value of something, but most of the things that I've uh, that I've learned during my finance studies and maths and all of that, I've forgotten. But everything that I have learned from for Edburn Sleep, I do not forget. And no. people tell me you're like a health uh, encyclopedia, walking yeah. health. And I couldn't understand why, although I loved history and I loved mathematics and I loved philosophy. And I do remember some things. I've forgotten about most of the books that I've read. Mm. I know I've read them. I just don't quite remember, yeah. apart from a few, yeah. what's in them. But everything that I have done for Eat, Burn, Sleep, I was not taught. Yeah. I did it for me and for my own yeah. salvation. And it's as if it was written in stone in my head. I will not forget it. Yeah. Wow. And that's because I've, I wasn't taught. I went out of my way yeah. and empowered myself yeah. with the knowledge. Yeah. I mean, without getting too technical, we, we, we don't understand reality. We never will comprehend reality. What we do instead is we create a map of reality. And those, that map is populated with you know, kind of the important milestones, um, things that stand out, features in the landscape, are constructs. They're things that we have cre created that explain the world well enough, well enough, that we can operate on the basis of those constructs. So my, my sense of self, my identity is a construct. My, my, um, the notion of success is a construct. Relationships, how, they, how they're important, is a construct. Um, and, and, and that's where the liberation is, because if it's a construct that you've made up, you can change it. Yes. And that's where, that's where your power is. So when you coach CEOs, and I mean, you've mentioned to me a few of your clients, and yeah. those are people most of our listeners would know. Yeah. Is there something in common between them that you managed to unlock? You saw something in me um, as you started this conversation. You said that there's a, one of the problems is that I go into some businesses, particularly older established businesses with you know, a certain kind of male at the helm, and they see me and they don't want to ever see me again because I'm just too terrifying. That, that if we let Miles's energy loose in this, energy, in this company, this organization, all hell will break loose. Because, you know, they, they, I remember being in a conversation with a number of CEOs uh, and they were talking about creativity and the need for it in their organizations. And before they had completed their first breath, they started talking about risk management. <laughs> so it's like we, 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 we want to release our people. No, we don't. We want to empower our people. No, we don't. So I'm, I'm so, so I don't get to see as many people as I'd quite like to who are really willing to work with me. Those that I do get to work with usually are 
not on the sociopathic end of the scale. They're more empathetic. They, they, they genuinely understand that the business is about people and that isn't just something that they say at, you know, at the annual conference, um, that people are our most important asset. They genuinely understand that. Um, and they have a kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the word resilience, but it isn't the word that I want to use because resilience to me sounds too brittle. They have a, 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 um, an, an enduring suppleness that allows them to maintain a focus over quite a period of time and, and bring people on board with that. But there's, a, there's an extraordinary thing. I've, I've, I, I, given the, the background in tennis, I sometimes take people onto the tennis court so that they can see a different way of operating, a way that involves them trusting themselves, which, of course, we've been taught not to do. Yeah. We've been taught to do it the correct way rather than to trust ourselves. So I bring them onto a court to allow that to happen. And one of the amazing things is they have a higher capacity. The really good CEOs have a huge capacity for, for a high level of focus. So we know with top sports people, for instance, that there's what sports people typically call the zone, what a psychologist would call flow. And the, the very best people can put themselves into a state of flow um, where... And in that state of flow, you perform to your best. Um, and it's, it's one of those kind of untold secrets that we, we kind of say, you know, in sports, you know, the other, you know that person's a natural and they, they kind of, you know, and they're and so instinctive. It's like, of course, <laughs> yes, but actually they're in flow, they're in the zone. And that's not just reserved for top class performers. Anybody can get in the zone, anybody. And what gets you in the zone? One, you have to surrender, you have to trust yourself. That's probably the most difficult hurdle. Two, it's, it's essentially about focus and attending. So I, I do, I do I, when I'm speaking at a conference, I frequently do this thing where I find the, the person in the audience who can't catch, right? And, and that in itself is a bit of fun. Um, and then I'll, I'll, the exercise unrolls, I get, them, I get them to set a goal. So if your catching was to get better, how would we know? How many would you catch out of 10, for instance? And they say, oh, five. Oh, okay. Um, and... So I throw them a tennis ball, and I say, um, we're going to forget about catching, but, but I'm going to throw you this tennis ball, and what I want you to do is tell me anything you notice about the tennis ball. And they, kind of, they don't get the question at first, so I have to say it at least three times, and I say, I mean, anything I notice? Yeah, anything you notice. There's no right answer. See, that whole thing about compliance is forcing its way in again. So once they understand, and they say, well, and I throw the ball, and it, they look at it in the air, and it comes towards them, and they fail to catch it, they say, well, it's yellow. Okay, great, thank you. Then throw you another one and tell me what you notice about this one. And after four or five balls, they really start noticing. And they'll have said three or four things like, it's spinning, uh, there's some writing on it, it's high or it's low, it's fast, whatever they say. And they say, you said these three or four things, and I summarize this. On the next one I throw you, tell me which one stands out the most. So I throw the ball. And they say, it's spinning. Spinning stands out the most. And what they don't realize is, They've caught it. Because <laughs> they've looked at it. Because they've looked at it. And because actually also all their distractions, all the interference, all the worry, all the doubt has gone. There's just them. You know, we talk about mindfulness. So nobody really knows what it means. I know what it means. That's what it means. It means when you're fully there, fully present. And the magic about being there, fully there and fully present is you, you somehow have access to all your resources, your capacity to learn, for one. So the person immediately starts learning to catch elegantly, beautifully. I mean, you can, you can see them within minutes, the hand kind of coming back in like a, like a professional cricketer or something, catching the ball and just elegant, elegant. Um, but equally, if we're talking about a situation where creativity is d demanded, people start making suggestions and thinking things and having thoughts and solving problems. So in that, in, that, in being in the zone, in being in flow, uh, it, it, it's the essence of, the, of, of, of genius. Amazing. We've all got it. That makes complete sense. I'm like, <laughs> as you're talking, I, I keep thinking of things that yeah. I couldn't explain about me. Yeah. So when I do Instagram lives, I often have a topic, but I don't prepare. I never prepare them. Yeah. Uh, because people ask questions during the live, and yeah. it's very much a flow thing as we go. Yeah. But because I'm so passionate about um, the the subject of yeah. health, and it gives me so much pleasure helping people. I selfishly get a high from helping people. <laughs> of course, yeah. 
I think I get in that zone and people ask me, they're like, oh my God, how are, are you so eloquent? How do you know so much about so much? And I notice that knowledge that has been buried that I haven't tapped into for six months, one year, two years, comes back to the surface during those lives when I haven't prepared. Yeah. And had I tried to prepare it yeah. and write down that knowledge, it probably wouldn't have come to me. Yeah. But it comes during those lives. Yeah. And I could only explain it by the fact that I thought, so oh, I have a wonderful community online. They give me positive energy. I'm able to, to solve issues and, yeah. and things just dots connect at the right time. Yeah. Amazing. It's called being in flow. <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm a complete flow junkie. So everything I do, pretty much, I do because it, it gets me into flow. So I started learning to fly sailplanes, gliders. Some years back, I stopped something because it takes up too much time. The reason for doing it fundamentally was, one, my father flew Spitfires and Hurricanes during the uh, Second World War, and, and that was something that he continued to do flying afterwards. So it was one of the places that he and I related. But, but it, was, it was, so that was the reason. But the other was it was about being in flow. I mean, it's like, because when you're flying a glider, you've, you've, you have, there's no engine, right? So you've got to be some, you, it's like you almost feel the wind before it hits the aircraft. I mean, it's like before before it makes a move in the in the in the, the physical aircraft, you feel it, I and mean, it's almost like the soft understanding of my arms, just being in touch with that sensation, and you respond without thought. It's the most incredible thing. So, but it's a, it's about being in flow. I play tennis competitively. It's about being in flow. I I coach. It's about being in flow. Is this why people get uh, hooked to activities where yes. they can can only do that? Yes. For example, jumping off an airplane in a parachute or are doing things like this it's not necessarily the adrenaline is it because you okay yeah it's great and and there 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 is there, there is a version of flow that says it's about adrenaline and all the other chemicals that get released and i don't think that's right i i think what it, i think there are some people who are uh, addicted to adrenaline and taking risks boom and they do what they do that's they may also experience flow but if you read some of the stories about people continuing to do an activity where they've broken a leg or something and they're still skiing. It's like, that's bordering on something else for me. Flow is this mental state where you are completely engaged in the moment uh, where all else disappears. And it's just, it's just you and potentially you and your team in the moment, total focus. Cooking does that for me. Yeah. That's why I've, I've always cooked, even when I was a banker and I would do 10 hours on the trading floor, I'd come home, you would think I was exhausted. But I'd go to the kitchen and cook for my boyfriend yeah. and I because yeah. it relaxed me. Yeah. Yeah. Cooking for me is so relaxing. Yeah. I guess because I'm, I'm just doing that. I guess you're just doing that. Unfortunately, I, love, I, I, I cook too, but I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit too much of a perfectionist. So it gets, it gets in the way. Somebody said to me the other day, so might, but you love cooking, don't you? I said... No, not really. I just love eating. <laughs> and the best way of getting food that I want to eat is to make it. But yes, I, if I prepare correctly, if I have all the ingredients and understand the recipe that I'm trying to follow, if, I, if all of those things fade into the background, then I'm in the zone when I cook. Yes. Interesting. Like that. Yeah. So you wrote this book, Enabling Genius. Yes. How did you decide to write that book? So the nature of coaching is such that it, it, it goes back into what we've said earlier, that, that learning and all those other skills, creativity, problem solving, are innate in a person. So my primary job as a coach is not to be clever and smart and fix people or heal people or put them back together in a different way or solve their problems for them. My, problem, my skill is to listen and ask questions in such a way that the person does it for themselves. And that's, that actually has a technical name, which is a very silly name. It's called non-directive coaching and it's a silly name non-directive because it doesn't it tells you what not to do rather than what you should do one or two people at around the time said time said to me when they had a real uh, really difficult jobs to pull off um, they said you know what we've been doing miles has been really great and i want to continue but i i think we can we need to push it further because i need to bring all my potential if i'm going to bear on this particular project so i went away scratching my head said hmm how can I create a scaffolding that will allow me to have these people crawl out towards their fullest potential safely without my making it up as I'm going along, which you know I'm mm -hmm. capable of doing, but it wasn't enough. So I pulled together about 20 people, and we looked at the 
the lives and experiences and kind of the, the processes and journeys of a number of people who we deemed to have demonstrated greatness to see if we could find out if they had anything in common in terms of how they got there. So it, w it was a request that led to my... I knew I couldn't do the research in time, so I got some people with me to do it, um, all of which was done kind of on a voluntary basis, and that, that resulted in, in, in that book. And what do you mean by genius? I was at a conference, um, speaking at a conference, an international coach federation conference, and I started using the word genius. And at, at the end of it, I was approached by a guy wearing a blazer with brass buttons. And you know that, that that's, the, that's the, the suit of conservative <laughs> conservatism um, with a small C. And uh, this guy was sputtering in rage. I mean, literally, he said, you, you can't say that everybody can be a genius. So I'm sorry. <laughs> so he, said, he was so angry, which is which is was kind of a giveaway that you know. So I said, right, okay. So so, but let me let me just check. Do you think do you do you agree that everybody has potential? And the man had the grace to say, yes, of course. I, I'm a coach. Everybody has potential. So I said, so you're saying they have potential, but it's capped somewhere short of genius. And he just looked at me and said, oh, I really have to think about this, don't I? And I just I said, thank you. Because the point had been made again, you know, you, you ask people when what they what genius means to them, they'll mention Einstein and Mozart, and that's pretty much about it. The, there's the consensus that those two white males, <laughs> both dead, <laughs> represent genius. No, thank you. I, I I like being alive. So it had to be broader than that. So genius, as I now think about it, it's the embodiment of your potential. So you talk to somebody about their potential and they kind of, they, their eyes glaze over and it doesn't mean anything. But if you, if you say you've got a unique individual genius, that becomes interesting. Because if you can create a construct around that, what your unique individual genius is, now you've got something to work with. And that moves potential out of the realm of potential and into the realm of something real and workable and practical that you can... Uh, develop and grow. So, so genius, the embodiment of your potential. A big part of what I do in, mo in the work I do now is starts with a leader finding out what their unique individual genius as a leader is. Another conference I said recently, I said, imagine a teacher standing at the front of a room full of children and asking herself the question, I wonder what the unique individual genius of each single child in this room is and how that would transform the educational experience rather than the idea that I've got to ram this crap down their throats. But the genius comes also from life experience. It's not necessarily innate, don't you think? It's both. So, they, 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 yes. So if you look at where, you know, how people become what they are and, and studies with kind of twins that have made that possible, it's <laughs> the, last, the last piece of research I had was that 49% innate and, uh, you know, nature, and uh, whatever's left, 51% um, nurture. So yes, it's exactly right. It's partly, so that the, the, the game is to find out what your gifts are naturally and exploit the hell out of that <laughs> and develop that. Uh, and that's, that's where self-expression lies. That's where joy lies. That's where high performance lies. Yeah, because I, I remember being terrible at biology when I was in high school. I hated biology. And now I do this all day long, and it's my favorite topic. Of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. Yes. And my children actually scored well in biology exams because they said to me, Mom, we, they tested us about amino acids, which we hadn't covered, but because of everything you talk about, <laughs> I got the points. <laughs> and yeah. I think back to... My biology teacher, it was boring, it wasn't fun, there was no purpose in my head from those biology lessons. However, I started taking an interest in medicine when I was 18, but I was studying business. But I read the book about the life of Avicenna, who's a Persian doctor from the 10th century, 10th, 11th century, who's the father of modern medicine. Yes. And I became passionate about his life, obsessed. I thought to myself, oh my God, why am I studying business? I'm passionate about medicine. And then the business mind took over. Oh, I'll make much more money in finance than being a doctor. Forget about that. This is the right choice. <laughs> yep. And also being Moroccan-Iranian, so many 
people from Morocco or Iran, they were all going to study medicine. It felt like a cliche, so I was happy not to do it. And later on, now I'm passionate about it because there is a purpose. Yeah. First, it was healing myself and now healing people. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, a couple of years ago, I started looking into Avicenna's work again. I pulled out his, uh, an accurate translation of his canon of medicine, which is the book on which modern medicine has been, is based and has been used for centuries as a, as a reference. And I realized that really an anti-inflammatory lifestyle is very similar to what he was suggesting back then. So we started at a point of natural healing. The only thing he did different is he would give advice based on seasons. But we do we no longer live seasonally. We eat the same vegetables yeah. all year round. Yeah. And also we, this is a big taboo, but, but I'll just say it, we no longer live in our natural habitat. Yeah. England is not my natural habitat. No, indeed. I'm <laughs> wondering the, whose it is, but anyway. <laughs> you know, I'm probably not made to eat potatoes. And yeah. anyway, so we started at a point where we were healing with foods, like what I do. And then we started working on extracts, creating uh, potions, tinctures, and then medicine, and then everything lab-made. And now that doesn't work anymore, and we're coming back to the origin. And so I work with so many doctors. Yeah. I mean, and this has taken a thousand years because Avicenna was born around, yeah, 980. I was born 1978. So it's a thousand years mm -hmm. in between. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yes. And uh, why am I telling you all of this? So I started taking interest in biology when I read his biography. And then obviously because it helped people. When I started looking into his work again, I reread his biography and realized that the one thing he hadn't fixed and he died of is ulcerative colitis, which is the disease I have. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> it yeah. was such a spooky moment, yeah. Miles. Yeah, I can't tell you. Yeah. Yeah. I was in my home thinking, what the hell? This is weird. Yeah. It felt weird. Uh, but again, I guess you have the, um, the ability to learn, but there's got to be a passion Yeah. That stems from something, either yeah. someone who inspires you or yeah. a desire yeah. or a personal struggle or a self-belief yeah. that creates the 51%. Yeah, yeah. And, but let me go back into something you were just saying there because the, and, and talking about how, you know, trusting ourselves and the capacities we have. If you can sufficiently get rid of your preconceptions about what your food should be, so you, so you can actually go into a, a, a vegetable um, shop and look around and say, what's interesting? You know, what, what, on the shelves, what's standing out for me? You start picking foods that are, are right for you in that moment. But we've lost the capacity to do that. We've lost the capacity to trust ourselves. And it's really tragic. Could, really tragic. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, that's why my method has a lot of flexibility. So at the beginning, oh. at the beginning it teaches, it removes all the the big nose, just to reduce the inflammation, because when you reduce chronic inflammation, you reduce neuroinflammation. Yeah. So your brain starts working better. The body just calms down. And slowly, slowly, because you have gone for all the low-hanging fruit and you're getting better with very simple changes, you start being able to tap into uh, your needs. Right. So a lot of people these days suffer from... Yeah. They suffer from food addiction they, yeah. because a lot of processed foods are... Uh, manufactured to mess up with our dopamine receptors. Yeah. So they are going to crave things that are not good for them. Once we remove all these addictive substances from the system for three weeks is to change habits. Six weeks is a, is a quarantine. So it's an entire yeah. reset. And that's why I have this six-week reset. Yeah. Once you've done your six weeks, your body is effectively back to the origin And then yeah. you can start doing exactly what you said. Mm, what do I fancy today? I want some greens. Mm, today I don't want to eat greens. I want to eat oranges, mm. orange colors. So sweet potatoes and butternut squash and things that will have different yeah. phytonutrients, yeah. vitamins, minerals. Yeah. And I think our body also mimics seasons. So right. we can go through... Listen, th there's no study showing this. This is just my observation. Mm -hmm. 
I've noticed that people go through phases. They'll have a phase of eating a lot of something, then they get sick of it. They have another phase of eating something else. And there are different reasons for that. The first is they probably have get, gotten all the nutrients they need from those foods. So the oh, body okay. sw switches to okay. something else, which is similar to seasonality. Okay. So when apples were oh, okay. in season, oranges yeah, yeah, were in yeah. season, we were get, getting yeah, yeah, different yeah. nutrients, yeah, different yeah, yeah, vitamins, yeah. different... Of course. Yes. Yeah. And so we switched to something else. Yeah. So when people go, tell me, oh my God, I'm going through a phase of eating so much of this, I say to them, just let your body do it. Yeah. If it's a healthy keep food. Noticing, keep noticing. Yes. Yeah. And at some point, your body will not want it anymore for a while. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to come back to a sensitive point you have covered earlier. It's time for a little break. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying today's podcast. A reminder to all our listeners to subscribe, rate and share this podcast with your friends and anyone who might enjoy listening to it. We also have a discount code for all our podcast listeners, which I will be sharing at the end. Keep listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. You said, when I teach CEOs who are not sociopaths. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. So so there, there, there is an unhealthy, and I think it's about, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the proportion of people who have demonstrate sociopathic tendencies amongst amongst the senior leadership in many of our organizations is is twice what you'd find in the normal population. Um, and um, that in itself is interesting. So and if and if and if and if there's a spectrum, then you know you sometimes find people who are significantly down that scale who run their organizations by diktat. Um, you know, I, I cannot tell you the number of times I've been running a team meeting for a senior team in a large organization and somebody will, you know, on the way into a meeting or in a break or at dinner or something will say, can we have a minute? I mean, yeah, I really want to say this, but if I, if I say this, it could be, you know, uh, uh, affect my career or, you know, or, I'll, you know, whatever. And, and so we have this. One, we have an addiction to the notion that one that we've got one leader rather than having leadership teams. That's a problem in itself, but and it also contributes to the idea that you have this person who has all this power. So, and power is addictive, like like you know, <laughs> like some of the things we put into our food. We get people get hooked on it. They 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 enjoy it. So, there are far too many people in our large organizations who are single-handedly running those organizations, and the people around them are you know, inhibited and disabled by that. And there's a lot of it about. And those people I can't work with. One, they won't let me in the door. Um, and, and occasionally I've worked with people like that. And what I find out is that there's, there's, a, there's a reason for it. So one guy a number of years back was the effective CEO of one branch of the, the armed forces here in the UK. He said some very interesting things during the course of our conversations, but it came clear to me after about three or four conversations that something wasn't right. So I, he said he was said something. So I asked him a question. He didn't answer the question. So I said, and he started he said something something else. So I said, hold on a minute. Um, I I just asked you this question. You didn't answer it. Um, so here it is again. I asked the question again. He didn't answer it again. I said, so I stopped him. I said, no, you know. Here's the question. And his eyes actually flicked to my shoulder to see how many stripes I had. Because, of course, I'm a civilian. I didn't have any. And he still refused to answer. And so, so I, point, I just pointed it out to him again. And he said, hmm, you're right. I must go to the loo. And he left the room. You know, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's the, that addiction. You know, you, you, and the army is this, you know, it was, it was the armed services. It was a branch of it. Um, and... Uh, you know, you, you appeared at the place where they were located and you get escorted in my car with, a, with an escort to go to his place. There was an anteroom before the anteroom. And these are, these are not institutions that are designed for quick decision-making. No. A lot of business is moribund as a, as a result of that. So lar large organizations, you know, they do lots to try and be agile, 
but it doesn't happen all that much. Most culture change programs don't work. We know that. You're effectively saying that people with sociopathic tendencies, on the one hand, make good CEOs, and I'm guessing because of the lack of emotion and probably being able to you know, make difficult decisions easily. But on the other hand, you're saying that in the long run, it can be counterproductive yeah. because of the lack of flexibility yeah. And, yeah. and growth. Yes. What yes. would the ideal CEO look like to you? So for, I just want to make sure that we don't set up the notion that all CEOs in the world are, are sociopaths. There's a spectrum around that, and there are one or two who are fairly <laughs> on the extreme end of it. Most people have just got overly addicted to the power and the trappings of power. Um, and, and even the people around them are feeding off the scraps from that table. So, so that's, it's kind of, it, it's stuck in a cultural place that's just really, really unhealthy. What does the ideal CEO look like? Uh, I, I think it depends on partially on what the, the size and the nature of, their, of, of the organization. You can get people who are, this, this is going to be an oversimplification. For somebody to be effective in managing others, there are kind of three components to that. There's to lead to manage and to coach. What you find is that you sometimes get people who end up in the top position who are really good in the manage piece. They, you know, they, they control shit. Then you find other people who are more inspiring and so that they do the lead piece. You find fewer people at that level who do the coach bit. But what you want is somebody who's, who's got probably much stronger in the leadership, the inspire, but they have to have that, that, the capacity to manage to a certain degree so that people are held to account and do what they said they'd do. And you've got to have a fair dollop of, the, of that coaching capacity, which is where the empathy is, which is where the, the ability to let somebody run with something on the, and do it in their own way sits. Uh, because you can't control people if you want to get the best from them. They simply, they'll, they'll end up as being, I don't know, you know, I, you know I, I write. My editor is very careful. We make an agreement about what I'm going to write, the shape of the book, the number of words, the topics. He doesn't then stand behind me and correct everything I'm writing. You know, this not, he, he allows Miles to go and write. Mm. Um, he had difficulty doing anything else, but in my case. But, but you know, so you've got to let that person get on with it. So you set the parameters in which, when the agreements and the expectations, and you let that person get on with it. Manage, set the expectations, hold people to account. Lead, inspire create pictures of the future, that good stuff, and then coach, which is about empathy, understanding, helping people find their own way forward and letting them go and doing it. And you can do that safely because you know that in, in a few weeks' time you'll have a managed conversation so you can pull them back. And that gives them ownership of the project yeah. and the work. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I've always, I've always had like quite an entrepreneurial mentality. So when I was... Um, working for Barclays Capital, I didn't have a boss like just above me. There was only like the big boss. There was a, a gap in the management. So I went to see him and I said to him, I said, please, I was quite uh, forward. I said, I can't deal with politics. I can't deal with emails back and forth. Just give me a, a budget and trust me to make it. And I will, I didn't say to him, I'm going to make double. But I was thinking that I was like, just let me do it. And I performed much better when I was left to do my own thing. And he agreed. He let you do yeah, that. Yeah, he agreed. He oh, fantastic. He was brilliant. Yeah. He was brilliant. I yeah. actually yeah. I actually ended up producing three times what he had set. Yes. And the following year, he doubled that. And I still made three twice. Okay. No, not, no, 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 not that much. But that's twice. still incredible. Yeah. Um, because I was left to do my own thing. Yeah. And then they brought in a terrible manager. Yeah who made my everyday life a nightmare by yeah. micromanaging when he was unable yeah. to actually produce and make yeah. money for the bank. Yeah. So I, I, be, I got upset. Yeah. yeah. And I went to see the guy above saying, listen, this person, yeah. with all due respect, is not a producer. Let me get on with my job. Ask him to stop, you know, being, yeah. uh, just go and do his work instead of watching mine every minute. Yeah. Trust me with the end result. Yes. And that was not done, and in the end I got an offer from another bank, and that's yeah, why I left. You were, of course you did. Large organizations put those people in place be because they feel that that's going to manage out risk and make things safer. And it maybe makes things safer, I don't know. Um, 
but it certainly makes them less productive. And you, you saying being an entrepreneur, part of the answer to your question about what makes a, a great CEO is that entrepreneurial piece has to be there. That if you look at there's a on, that kind of entrepreneurialism that comes out of um, California. Um, and and the the IT and and all the Silicon Valley, that's you know, the, the guys who and girls who are successful. There's there's a, a kind of growing body of evidence that that they're probably somebody in there. They're probably male. They're probably forty five plus or minus. They're probably on their third startup, and what that tells you is they have. You back to your point earlier about. The experience and the the, the 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 nurture piece. They've learned. They've they've learned the lessons. So what's emerging from that is a sense of we we kind of are beginning to know how to lead, manage, coach in an entrepreneurial fashion, much more successfully. And and those are the lessons that we need to bring into our larger corporations, so that 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 so that so that people are allowed to get on with it and not be obstructed like you were and frustrated. Yeah, and I, at the end of the day, we're dealing with human beings, not machines. Yeah. So it's about how you can bring the best out of each individual, which you know takes time of yeah. observing, looking. Because each person is a bit different. Some people want entrepreneurship. Others sometimes need a bit more direction. Yeah, precisely. So it's having the sensitivity to think of each person as an individual and responding to that. So I have one last question. Right. How do you know that you have the genius in you. And I'm going to explain why I'm asking this. How do you know, do you need somebody else to help you believe in yourself, trust in yourself, point to your ability, point to you what your abilities are or potential is? Like we just spoke about before starting this podcast, I was telling you that this studio... Um, Yeah. Is part of this company founded by Denzon, who's my mentor. He's one of the iTunes pioneers, and he's, um, you know, the the company he has now helps harbor young talent. And when we met, he saw the potential mm. in me helping people with their health, which I could not see. Mm. I couldn't see it. He believed in me. He he helped me, you know, set up the company. He gave me a desk in his office. He was like, yeah. the lawyer is here, the graphic designer is here, yeah. just set up the company, get on with it, do it. You can help people get on social media. I didn't want to be on social media. He managed to convince me. I did not see it. Had I read your book, I'm not sure I would have seen it. No. I don't know, but, yeah. you know, yeah. how a lot of people who are listening to us right now, yeah. there might be something in them that can grow yeah. into... The genius zone. Yes. What What is your advice to them? So for, first of all, I, to almost underline how important your question is, I was speaking with somebody the other day, somebody I know quite well, and, and I had absolute clarity. So this person suffers from depression in varying degrees at various times of year. And I know a little bit about their background and, and, and you know, their growing up, an only child, um, loved, but not really present at the table. You know, the, the parents had a very strong relationship and the consequence of which was nobody ever told her she was any good. I mean, literally, nobody ever told her she was any good at anything. So the what that engendered was an almost complete absence of self-worth. So having a conversation about genius in that moment is really, really difficult, but it tells you what the consequence is of not having the explorations about what somebody might be good at. One of the most important things I know about helping people make progress is not to talk about change and not to talk about, um, you, know, uh, you know, kind of taking a big risk and, 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 and diverting from the path and, that you're on and moving over here. No, 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 no. Run experiments. So the notion of experiment, experiment in the scientific um notion is that you you create a hypothesis about a hypothesis about something um, and then you go and you test the hypothesis so work out a few things that you might be good at that 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 really rock your boat that you have a sense of purpose from so you know you can make a kind of a short list of of two or three things you know this this might be it for me and it doesn't have to be something like changing the world it can be you know flower arranging and what well, i guess you could change the world with flower arranging i just haven't worked out how yet whatever it is and run some experiments go to a, a really good flower arranging class or whatever it is and check out is this for me 
Ask yourself, what are the gifts that you've been born? What are you good at? What, 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 do, what do people come to you for? You think of all the people who have made requests of you. What, what are they coming to you for? What do they get from you? Because that, that could be really hugely insightful. So work out a number of things that might be your genius. And then run an experiment. Right? I, I worked out um, a, when, on the tennis court. I got, I got a call from somebody who said, so-and-so has, has told me I really need to speak to you. Okay, great. So uh, why? Because you understand something about the mental side of tennis, and I'm a tennis coach. Oh, great. Where do you teach? Turns out he was in a tennis center 20 minutes away from my house. So we went and had a tennis lesson. And one of the early things he said to me, he said, what's what's your signature, he said. What do you mean, what's my signature? So you got to remember, I'm 64. So he said, so he chose some tennis players who are names that were very familiar to me. He said, "Are you Stefan Edberg? Are you McEnroe? Are you, you know, a Becker? What you? Who are you? What's what's your signature? Ah, what's my identity? Now I was beginning to get somewhere. So I have I have an identity that that about about who I am, kind of a, a kind of a, at a at a macro level, at a meta level of understanding of that, but at a, a kind of a major level and then a minor level within you know within what I do on the tennis court, I've got another sense of what my genius is. See, because I'm a tennis, competitive tennis player and a coach. If I show up to play a match as the coach, I've already lost because my job is to make them look good. Alternatively, if I'm trying to give a tennis lesson and my competitor shows, you can finish that one for yourself. Um, so it's really important for me to understand who shows up on the tennis court. And I got to it. I got to a really clear definition of what that is. But it required me to experiment. So what am I, you know, one of my gifts on the tennis court? Well, actually, I hit the ball kind of hard. Okay, I'm left-handed. That's, a, that's, that's kind of unique. You know, there's, we're only 10% of the population or something. So people aren't used to having the ball come in cross-court into their backhand. So I came to this notion of my genius, which was big Zen cat. Big is I hit the ball hard with quite a lot of topspin. Zen, and there was, the experiment in Zen was interesting because it was a separate experiment. I was trying to notice what's the mental state because Zen was kind of interesting and, and kind of almost poetic. But then I realized one day I was on a court and I was, I was giggling inside I was playing so well. Because this isn't vain. It was vanity. Or it, was, it was actually just the joy of expressing myself. And I said, I'm not showing that in my face. I've got this unmoving face. That's absurd. I should be giggling. So I, so I started giggling, <laughs> which was very upsetting for the opponent. But it's right. So, so understanding that... And then cat is, I know that I'm, I'm not going to play endless rallies with people. That's boring. I have to finish the point in about three hits. All my strategies now come from that. So look at your, what your gifts are. Look at what, how they might match up with different kinds of activities. Run some experiments. See what gives you joy. Thank you so much for this. So much wisdom. And you've just said it allowed you to express yourself, which is what you wanted to do as a little boy. So... Congratulations, you have reached your goal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's true, actually. What, what you just said about what do people come to you for? Yes. So after I healed myself, I went back to finance. I set up a company with a former colleague of mine. But my close friends knew that I had you know, digestive issues and I got better. So they would send me people. Right. With bloating, IBS things like that, or slightly more severe digestive issues. What I did was, of course, help. But because I was busy and super matter of fact, I would say to the person, I'm going to help you for free on one condition. You do exactly as I'm telling you. <laughs> because I didn't, you know, yeah. I didn't want to waste time with people yeah, I couldn't yeah. help. I was yeah. like, I, yeah. there's got to be a barrier to entry. Yeah. Yeah. So the barrier to entry right now on Eat, Burn, Sleep is the price. Yeah. They have to commit so yeah. they can do it. When, whenever I give access to the platform for free to people, they invariably do not do it. So my cousin once came to me and asked for it. I said to her, no, otherwise all my work will be wasted. Yeah. I actually want you to do it. So the day you are in front of your computer with your credit card and you're about to pay, you ring me. Were you about to do that? She said to me, no. I said, so you're not ready to commit, are you? Very good. good. <laughs> so the, end, the barrier to entry was the commitment that yeah. everything I say, they do. And I helped a couple of people. One of the persons I've helped was a man who had the worst IBS. Exhausted, bloated, water retention, swollen face, swollen mm. everything. 
belly, everything hurt his tummy. So I wrote a plan for him. I went to his house. I met his wife. They luckily had someone to help cook. So I met the person. I said, you're going to do this, 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 that, that, that. The wife was very supportive. She was desperate for her husband to be back and better. I'm sure, yeah. And so I left this paper that I had printed, this, you know, few pages. And around six weeks later, he rings me and says to me, Alda, I can't thank you enough. Can, you please, can I please take you out to lunch at Harry's Bar <laughs> yeah. in London, which is a treat. I said, thank yeah. you. I said, of course, with pleasure. When I saw him, he looked lean, but a healthy lean. All the swollenness had gone. His eyes were bright. His skin was glowing. This was a man with health in him. Forget about the lunch. That gave me so yeah, much of joy. Did. Yeah. And at that moment, I was thinking, I can sit with family offices and talk about how to make rich people richer. I can do it. And adding a percent, two percent, three percent to their returns. But it doesn't give me the joy this gives me. So it went somewhere in my brain. I guess without having met you and heard the amazing wisdom you've given to us. Now, it was a case of what do people come to you for? Test it and see how you feel. Mm. That was exactly that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was so insightful. I very much enjoyed our conversation. As did I. Thank you. I hope our listeners enjoy as well. I'm going to be linking all your books on my website. So they will be on eatburnsleep.com in the Yalda Loves section. So you can go and buy Miles' books. Miles is not a social media person, so there's not much on social media. If you want to... You'll find me on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn. Okay, so I will link, uh, I will add the LinkedIn page and your website, Mm -hmm. my website, and your books will be linked there. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Miles, for today. A great pleasure. A joy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to this podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. It's always such a pleasure to talk about health because it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Looking after our health is a daily thing, just like brushing our teeth. We've got to focus on it. We've got to do it right so we can live better and happier lives. For those of you who are not members of the platform yet, we have a discount code for all our podcast listeners. You can get 15% off the memberships. Just enter the code PODCAST1515 at checkout. Thank you. And make sure to read all the articles and all the free content we have on eatbrainsleep.com to keep you motivated and informed and educated about living an anti-inflammatory lifestyle.